the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Finding joy in daily life is not always an easy task. It requires a conscious decision and a lot of hard work. External pressures, internal voices, and joy stealers can wreak havoc on our emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. Today's guest, Bonnie St. John, has struggled throughout her life to find her joy. Bonnie lives her joy despite challenges including the amputation of her right leg, child abuse, divorce, and single motherhood. She defeated those challenges and went on to win silver and bronze medals as a ski racer in the 1984 Paralympics, to graduate from Harvard, to win a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford, and to receive an appointment from Bill Clinton to the White House National Economic Council. NBC Nightly News calls Bonnie one of the five most inspiring women in America. Hi, Bonnie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Joan, this is great. Actually, it's funny. I want to immediately take issue with something you said. Finding joy is a lot of hard work. And it actually doesn't have to be a lot of hard work. Do you want me to give you an example? Absolutely. So tell tell me something that made you feel joyful or, or can you remember feeling joyful recently? Coming to work. I love what I do. What does it feel like when you're coming to work? It's amazing for me because you don't know this about me, but my listeners do. This is the result of a transformation at the age of 46. I had that aha moment when I looked in the mirror and I didn't know who I was. I had completely lost sense of myself in raising my family and being the perfect wife. And in doing that, I didn't know what I was able to accomplish any longer. And I had this idea and this literally cost me my marriage. In that year, Bonnie, my mom and my sister passed away. My oldest child left for college. So I began this incredible transformation. And to be sitting here right now talking to you, is just a testament of what I've been able to achieve. So this is what I, I have so much joy about. Wow. Wow. So you're so proud of yourself of what you've overcome. And I'm getting, I can't even, you can say it all in three sentences. And I'm just sitting here reeling going, I can't even imagine that you lose your mother, your sister, your your marriage, and, and you rise from the ashes and are inspiring other people. So that's amazing. So when you talk about that, how does it How does it feel? I mean, you can feel it in your whole body, right? That you start to, you feel joyful just talking about it. Absolutely. I can talk about it for hours and never be tired of it. It's it's what I do 24-7. When we say it's how hard is it to have joy is, first of all, I feel more joyful just listening to what you said, and you feel more joyful talking about it. So we have joy that's accessible that easy. All you have to do is turn to your coworker. If you're, you know that time when you're starting a meeting and people are gathering around the table, turn to other people and say, hey, tell me one thing that brought you joy recently. They will start telling you things and you will feel more joyful. They will feel more joyful. Have you ever noticed when you're at work, you never have to ask people to complain? You know, hey, can you guys <laughs> complain a little bit for me? <laughs> but to actually stop and ask people say, to say, tell me something that brings you joy. It's, it changes the air. It changes the energy. And it's simple. It's quick. Bonnie, when did you learn this? Because to back up for a moment, I mentioned in the introduction, you've really overcome some major obstacles. I mean, you talk about me. I can't even comprehend what you've gone through. You've lost your leg when you were a young child. What led up to that? What made the doctors amputate your right leg? Well, it was a birth defect. When I was born, my legs looked normal, but there was missing a growth center in my thigh. And so my leg didn't grow. My thigh is still only about four inches long. 
And so it was fine, but the bigger I got, the more difference there was. I had orthopedic shoes and braces, and finally the doctors convinced my mother they really needed to amputate my leg so I could wear an artificial leg. So um, so I've had an artificial leg for many, many years and uh, and became an athlete. I wanted to ask you about that. Recently I had Jim Abbott on the show, and Jim pitched a no-hitter for the New York Yankees, and he was born without a right hand. And I asked him, why a pitcher? I have to ask you, why a skier? Why a sport that was so dependent on leg strength? Well, it turns out that there's a, a very vibrant circuit of amputees that ski. So I was racing against other one-legged women. It was a fair fight. For me, now, we see amputee runners, but a lot of the runners you see who are amputees, they have knees. So they're, they're amputated below the knee. If you're above the knee, running is harder. And there are people who do it, and they embarrass me, so I can't say I can't do it because there are people who do it. But I don't love running. Skiing doesn't require you to run. You know, so you can you can ski on one leg on one ski, and you can go fast, and you can race. So a lot of one-legged people do it. And uh, and so for me, it was a chance to, to be in a race, to be an athlete. In high school, I was never going to make a track team. I was never going to make the swim team with one leg competing against other people on two legs. So this was a vibrant, it was the first time I heard of a vibrant circuit that I could compete on. And at the time, I didn't, there, I wasn't aware of any track or swimming events. It was uh, earlier on. Now you see it everywhere. But at the time, I, I didn't know that there was any possibility of that. Now, Bonnie, we're talking about being an athlete and overcoming that challenge. And for someone who's sitting home saying, yeah, sure, okay, you know, athletics, big deal. But you overcame child abuse how were you able to ever get out from under that and go on to achieve the type of success that you have in life? Well, it's funny. The, the book that we're talking about today, Live Your Joy, I wrote it because people kept asking me. They said, you know, you had your leg cut off. You went through all this painful therapy to learn how to walk again. You were sexually abused as a child. Your father left before you were born. You were divorced, a single mother. You know, you should be an axe murderer by now. <laughs> you know, and there were times I was tempted. Yeah. But I, So I wrote the book Live Your Joy to really share with people, these are the things I did and I learned to overcome, to, to choose joy on a daily basis. And healing from the abuse in my childhood is probably one of the hardest things I really had to do because it is so painful on an emotional level. You know, there's physical pain of learning to walk again, but the emotional pain is so intense. You really, you know, the temptation to drink or run away or something, you know, is so intense. And it really came up for me when, when I had a daughter who was the same age as I was when I was being abused. But I had shut away a lot of the feelings for most of my life. But to be a mother and have to care and be open and tender and vulnerable with this little child and not deal with the memories was impossible. You know, so for me, what came up is if I want to be a mom, I've got to deal with the bad stuff. And so that gave me the strength to do it. I don't you know, I wish that I had done it before I became a mom, that I had cleaned up the, the emotional mess, but I don't think I would have had the strength to do it. You figured out a way to take your pain and take your challenges and use them as a fuel to, to provide the determination and the motivation to go on to these successes later on in life. Have you adopted the philosophy now that nothing can stop you? Oh, no. You know, I know some motivational speakers take that view. Is sort of, you know, burn the boats behind you. There's one thing. You have to do it and stick to it. I I think, I don't know that that's a joyful life. I, for me, I, uh, I I write about having a portfolio of goals. Just like you would have a port, you don't invest all your money in one thing and say, this is it, you know. That would be crazy. You you look at your time and your talent and your treasure, and you have many dreams in your portfolio. And if if something is working, maybe you invest more in it. But if something's not working so much, maybe you cut back your investment. I, you know, there's lots of things that I, I don't necessarily push forward. Uh, I, I like... I have many dreams, and I, and I work on them in different ways, and, and I do what makes the most sense. I think sometimes it makes sense to cut your losses and move on to something else, don't you? I do, and what I do now is I've, I've kind of adopted this philosophy that I'm going to just give anything a try, because if it doesn't work out, so what? And like you said, you just move on to something else. You don't dwell on what didn't go the way you wanted it to go. You learn from it and move on. And you don't have to beat yourself up. If you have a portfolio of goals and dreams then you don't have to beat yourself up just because one didn't work out. Bonnie, from where do you derive your strength? What is the role of faith in your life? 
oh, my faith is really important to me. When I, when I was going through the, the healing from abuse that I was talking about, I did many things. I went to therapy. I did yoga. I took long walks. But for me, the prayer, and, and I really learned a lot about prayer at that time and really uh, embraced prayer, that gave me the strength to keep doing the things I needed to do. I, I don't know without prayer that I would have had the strength to stick in doing the work. Bonnie, who are some of the women that are featured in How Great Women Lead? Oh, my gosh. We uh, we did Hillary. We talked to Hillary Clinton. We went out and sat with Condoleezza Rice at Stanford. We, the chairman of Deloitte, uh, the head of a movie studio in Hollywood. But early on, when I was talking to my daughter and saying, hey, let's do this book, one of the first things she said was, Mom, if you just do famous politicians, oh, we also did the president of Liberia. She said, if you do famous politicians and business leaders, and that's all you do, a lot of people won't feel like the book is for them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, right. <laughs> and so we also included a, a fighter pilot, an orchestra conductor, a fashion designer, and even a stay-at-home mom and a teenager. And it talks about how women are leading in all different ways everywhere. And really, we wanted to see everybody, uh, have everybody see themselves reflected in the women that we talk to. Bonnie, from your research, how would you define a leader? You know, it's interesting. We asked each of the women that. So in each chapter, you get their definition of what a leader is. So if I had to pull it all together, what they say, basically they're saying leaders are people who pull the best out of other people. So if you're leading a team, it's getting that team of people to each put in their best talents, to work with each other well, and to produce the best results. And often, if given that that's true, what women leaders are doing is developing other leaders. So they're developing other people that bring out the best in other people. And that, you know, and then you're bringing out the best in people on a large scale. What similarities did you find among those women that you interviewed? Did they all have certain traits that predisposed them to achieve greatness? I would definitely say not, that they are so different in different ways and different personalities. And my daughter, Darcy, found that so inspiring because she realized when we got in the process that she had a stereotype that leaders had to be a certain way or be a certain thing. She wasn't sure that she wanted to be that thing that leaders were supposed to be. And what she saw was these women had such different personalities and they brought their individual strengths to the table. And she thought, oh, so I can be a leader and I can be me. I can be the best me I can be and be a leader from that place. And in fact, that's the only way you can lead is out of your authentic values and out of your experiences. And that's why people want to follow you and respect you. There was a Harvard Business Review article about this where they did a study trying to find the uniform traits, and they concluded there aren't any. It's leaders are unique and they're themselves. That opens the way for anyone to go after their dream and make a mark on the world in whatever way they want to do. Because I think so often people, they look at you and they say, oh, I, you know, there's something different or special about her that I don't have. And I can never do what Bonnie did. But you're telling them that really we all start out on the same playing field. And it's just whatever path we take is what enables us to achieve greatness. Exactly. And again, my faith is important to me. So why would God have created you if he wanted you to try to be like me? He would have created three of me's if that's what he wanted. You know, each person is so special that when they bring their special God-given talents, personality to the mix, and you've got to work to, you know, leverage what you have to practice. If you have a skill, you've got to practice it. But bring that to the table. That's, that's what's needed is you, not you trying to be somebody else. What advice do you offer about being happy in life? You know, it's great that you asked that question because when, when you were talking, too, about uh, having a single goal and just driving forward all the time, one of the things I realized is that positive thinking isn't the same as joy. That positive thinking, you, you can be driven and have goals and you make things happen. And, I, and I've met people like this who, who are just not joyful. And, I, and I've been in that place, too. And what I realized is that joy is now. Joy is something you just feel in the present. It isn't the, 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 you know, something's going to happen in the future that's great. And so sometimes in the midst of all your positive thinking, you need to just sit down and feel joy. Just appreciate the sunshine on your face. Sometimes it's about just sitting still and feeling something. We, we get to-do lists that are so long. What I came up with for myself is to say I need to make a to-feel list or add to-feel items on my to-do list. Otherwise, I just do-do all day and I don't feel anything. Bonnie, I love when you use the term joy stealers because sometimes it feels like 
there are an endless number of people that are out there just on a mission to steal our joy. And when we give so much of our power to the external, to other people, I think that's when we set ourselves up to have these joy stealers have so much impact on us. So how can we deal with people that are on a mission to steal our joy? You know, it's a tough question, and it depends on how, you know, if you can, the simple answer is don't choose to spend so much time around them. But that isn't always possible, right? If it's your mother or your husband Mm -hmm. or your children, you know, you can't always just say, well, don't spend time around them. One piece of advice I give to people is balance it out. That if you have one joy stealer in your life that, that you need to spend time with, make sure you're spending at least as much time with joy givers, joy nurturers. So create, you know, cultivate a circle of friends you can have that positivity and they can help fill you up and focus on your joy and then you can come to the other person with a different attitude. Bonnie, we've spoken about your faith and we've spoken about healing. What is the role of forgiveness in the healing process? I know a lot of people talk a lot about that. Um, I guess the forgiveness is about letting go. If you're it's like if you're playing tug of war with somebody, it's it's exhausting. But if you let go of your end of the rope, then there's you you know you don't have that joy stealing anymore. So I, I guess it's about letting go of the other end of the rope. I, I think for me, it's not as much of an issue. It's not something I tend to do. I don't hang on to things. I'm not still mad at my stepfather who abused me. Uh, I, I think I have a lot of compassion for people. I, I really feel sorry for them. The people who. Uh, really have treated me badly because I have one leg, I just think, wow, you really live in a sad world. So uh, I think I have a lot of compassion for people that rather than just staying angry at them. I actually have a, a friend who lives by the philosophy of just two words. He always says, who cares? And whenever someone hurts him and he's about ready to get upset about it, he just says, really, who cares? And he's able to let it go and move on. I mean, I think, you know, I know that would be something that I need to work on. And and it sounds like you've been able to achieve that, to be able to let go and move past things. Patricia Fripp, uh, one of my mentors, once said, bitterness is like putting poison in your own coffee and expecting somebody else to die. Mm -hmm. You know, why why do we stew in so much bitterness if... if, uh, I want to be happy. So maybe that's part of it, too, is I I don't need to feed all that anger because I don't want to live that way. That's the best revenge is to not live that way. And, you know, going back to the introduction, when I said that finding joy is not always easy and, and you pointed out that that's not the case, I think really to sum it up, it's just a conscious decision to say, I'm going to be happy. And I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to let the things that other people did, their decisions or their pain or their their uh, unhealed wounds run my life. And I don't want to do that. I want to live my own life. There. But, you know, it's interesting because my mother used to really say, you know, move on and don't worry about what happened in the past. And it took me a long time to learn that I did have to heal what happened in the past. I couldn't just say, oh, forget it. It didn't happen. You know, I needed to do the work. So I don't want to make it sound cavalier. But doing the work versus dwelling on it or being bitter or being angry or blaming or, you know, all that stuff is different. Do the work to let it go. Exactly. Do the work, let it go, move on and find your joy. Yeah. Bonnie, what was it like to have competed in the Olympics and just to have been a part of something that grand? You know, that was my dream for many years, just to make the U.S. team, never mind win medals. For me, I just I just wanted to be a part of it and to be on the team, to be flying to Innsbruck, Austria is, is incredible. It's, it's so much better now for the disabled athletes. They really get to use the Olympic Village and have the same uniforms and do all the things the other Olympians get to do. But So even though I had a scaled-down version of it, I was just happy to be representing the United States of America. Bonnie, in about 30 seconds or less, what is the one thing you want our listeners to remember from this interview? It's that we are larger than we think. We are stronger. The human spirit is, is so strong. If a one-legged African-American girl from San Diego can become an international ski racer and to heal on the issues we've been talking about too. Anything is possible and we, we can be so much more than we think we can. So just to encourage everybody to find the greatness inside themselves, even if it means being a stay-at-home mom, being a great stay-at-home mom, being great for yourself, being great for your kids, even if it means being a CEO or head of the country, you know, wherever you are, just be the best you you can be and enjoy it. 
Bonnie, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I love your energy and I love your story. You are so inspiring. I'm sitting here with a smile. I had so much fun speaking with you today. So thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you for all you're doing and spreading, spreading the good energy. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Are you tired of prescription drugs and surgery as the only options available for your pain? I was too, but after working for over 20 years in the pharmaceutical industry, that was all I knew. My name is Janice Coviello. For years, I've been living with knee pain and discomfort every time I did something active, even walking. But after eight knee surgeries, countless bottles of Advil, and hyaluronic acid injections, I was desperate for relief. My doctors told me a knee replacement was my only option. To avoid another surgery, I found another solution, a transdermal gel known for reducing joint pain, faster recovery from injuries, enhancing strength, and promoting natural tissue repair. I started using the gel with amazing results. For the first time in 17 years, I could run without Advil. In addition, I sleep better and have so much more energy. But just don't take my word for it. Give it a try. Learn more about my journey and this amazing gel by visiting JaniceCoviello.com. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an Autism Moms Coach and founder of Mom Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. She is here today to discuss the myth of the good mother. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. A pleasure to be here. So, Heidi, a universal theme for all moms is this fear that we're just not doing it right, that we're not a good mother. But you say that there is the myth of the good mother. Can you explain this to us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. This this applies to all moms, not only moms of special needs children. It just takes on a whole other level when right. you're talking about a child who needs an extreme amount of care and attention. And I link this to the tragedy narrative of autism that I talk about because it's linked to autism is this, this narrative, this idea, this assumption in society that autism is a tragedy. And with that is an assumed role and responsibility of the special needs mom to fix it, cure it, normalize it, make it okay, make the kid happy, make everyone happy. And yes, all people who are, you know, want to be a good mom, want everything to be fine, 
but it takes on a real heightened intensity with a child with autism. This myth adds to the vicious cycle of social isolation because everything is centered around the autistic child and no one else, not even the other kids, the siblings of this kid, not even your husband, not even your friends. It's all about the, the lens, the focal point is only you as mom with this kid who needs so much help. And there's no room left for empathy or strength with other people. Our self-esteem even becomes linked to how a child happens to respond to a particular therapy or in intervention that we've chosen to try. And we have extra time pressure here because it's not a reproductive time clock, uh, biological clock, but it is the neuroplasticity time clock, which is linked to the tragedy narrative because it implies that you have a very limited amount of time to get in there, teach this child new, new, new skills, hurry up before the window closes, and you've lost your opportunity to help this child achieve something that they really, really need to achieve. And we feel this at different phases of the autism journey with speech and such for little kids. And we have that pressure also with vocational and even other daily living skills for young people approaching adolescence and then chronological adulthood. Linked to this myth of the good mother is what I call the spiritual umbilical cord, which is the mother-child heart-to-heart bond. This is not about giving birth physically, because this is true of any mom, even adoptive moms, there's an energetic pathway heart to heart. And we feel and receive, we send and receive messages back and forth. And again, true with all kids, but especially with spectrum kids, because while they may have difficulty identifying or expressing emotions, they feel them deeply. And when we are stuck in the myth of the good mother, we are actually harming our child because the myth that we're giving this kid is that you're broken. You're not enough. You're damaged. You're abnormal. You need to be fixed. Because otherwise, why would we be dragging this kid everywhere, doing all these therapies, feeling so upset? And they feel that unhappiness. We're placing the burden of our own happiness onto our special needs child instead of hanging on to that responsibility for ourselves. So, for example, if a kid is having a meltdown, look, no one is banging their head on the ground because they're feeling good. But compare the dialogue. The kid is on the ground. He's having a hard time. He's in distress. Now, myth of the good mother, mom is saying to herself, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. I'm not enough. I can't fix it. I can't stop it. I'm a horrible mother, and everyone around here is thinking I'm a terrible mother. And she's upset, and the kid feels that upset. But imagine if she says, you know what? I don't know what to do. My kid is having a meltdown, but thank God I'm here to keep him safe. He's blessed to have me. I'm going to do what I can do and wait this out and make sure that he's okay. And this is about him having a hard time. It's not about me being a good mother. That's a very different feeling, a very different narrative. And the kid feels the difference. And actually, I've seen it many times with my own child and others. The child will calm down when we step out of the myth of the good mother. And I'll give you an example of when that I got that point very quickly was I had been talking with Ethan's communication teacher about his ultra busy schedule, his therapy schedule, and I'm patting myself on the back because I was so in sync with Myth of the Good Mother, and I'm thinking she's going to think I'm the best mother ever, dragging him everywhere, every waking moment, evenings, weekends, every time to get him this therapy to fix his autism. And in the midst of my telling her all this, Ethan leaned over and he typed, I'm tired. And in that moment, I realized that I was making all these therapy decisions and so many other decisions based on me, not him. It was all about me. How narcissistic was that? And when I changed the central question and made it about him, not me, I was able to step out of that myth of the good mother and ironically become a better mother to Ethan. So Heidi, is there any other advice that you can offer moms? Yes, first breathe. That's really important to calm yourself down and your child will feel that calming of yourself down. And then use kind self-talk. Become aware of your inner guiding question. Are you making it about yourself or are you making it about him? Choose the thoughts that serve you. Get rid of the thoughts that don't. If you're operating out of fear, 
choose to go into compassion, have compassion for yourself at this moment, and praise yourself for discovering something very powerful, and shift the question to what does the child need, what is in his best interest right now? Because again, ironically, when we step out of the myth of the good mother with all of its impossible pressures and awful judgments, we calm down and we become even better moms to all our kids, the kids with autism, the neurotypical kids, the siblings, and even our own inner children who are suffering through all this. Without the myth, we are freer to truly love and accept unconditionally. And that's a huge gift for everyone. It doesn't get better than that. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic, or if you would like to learn more about Heidi and her work, you can visit momsspectrumoasis.com. And as always, to hear more from Heidi, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. According to a recent report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office, 48% of Americans age 55 and older have no money in either an IRA or 401k style account, and 29% have no pension or retirement savings accounts. Financial security in retirement requires that you will be able to live off your savings, investments, and Social Security benefits. But how many Americans are concerned that these retirement assets will not sufficiently cover their living expenses? And how can they bridge this retirement savings gap? Joining me today to discuss this growing problem and to offer actionable advice is award-winning personal finance journalist Jean Chatsky. Jean is a financial editor of NBC's Today Show and host of the podcast Her Money. Her new book is Women With Money. Welcome, Jean. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jean, let's start off by talking about this report. What did the report find regarding the retirement savings gap? So the folks at AARP conducted a survey and found about 60% of people believe they have a retirement savings gap. And just to define that, it basically means that when you combine your Social Security with your investments and your savings, you're not going to have enough to sustain the life that you want to live in retirement. More women feel that they've got a gap than men, but either way you look at it, it's a very large number, and it means we need to take some steps to start closing that gap. So people recognize the fact that they had a gap. Were they concerned about this? Oh, completely concerned. Um, about half of all men are very worried about this, and, and significantly more women. Jean, why do you believe so many people are not financially prepared for retirement? Well, if you ask them, they'll tell you that they just don't have enough money to save based on the money they earn, that unexpected expenses crop up and get in their way. But if you look historically at what's been going on, you know, over the last 25 years, we've transitioned from a system where many, many people had pensions to a system where we've got 401ks, we've got IRAs, we are responsible for saving for and investing for retirement ourselves. And with the number of people now who the growing number of people who are working for themselves, who are freelancing, a lot of people don't have those work-based retirement plans. So they're at a loss to get started. It's important to understand how much of the responsibility to do this is on us. So because we are responsible for our own financial health, what do you believe are some of the biggest mistakes we may make along the way? Again, we say the biggest mistakes that we make, according to this research, is not starting soon enough. But that doesn't mean that you should not start at all. The the best day to start is today, and the way to do it is with automatic contributions into a retirement savings account. If you've got a 401k at work and you're not maxing out, you want to get yourself to the point where you are maxing out. If you don't have a 401k, then you want to open an IRA or a Roth IRA or a SEP IRA and start funding it every single month with automatic contributions because if you pay yourself first in this way, you're not going to spend that money and it will have an opportunity to grow for your retirement. And I think a lot of it is a mindset as well. I'm the product of depression babies and 
My parents had a very different philosophy about money and saving. Do you think a lot of this is also because so many live outside of their means? Absolutely. I think we have gotten to the point where spending money is way too easy to do. And all of the technological innovations, Venmo, credit, debit, Amazon, and one-click ordering, they've all made it very, very easy to spend. My philosophy has always been save first. You know, make sure that you're checking off that box, that you've got emergency savings, that you've got long-term savings. And then whatever's left, you can choose how to allocate that for your wants and for your needs. I think I'm a dinosaur, gene because I actually like the feel of money in my hands. I like to know what's going in and going out. And and as you said, when it's also digital, it's just too easy to let it go out. It it is. And there's a lot of research on this that shows that we spend much more quickly with credit and with debit and with Venmo than we do with cash. So if as adults we're having our own issues financially, what then should we be doing to get our kids ready, to get them better prepared? Well, we should be having our kids save 10 to 15 percent of whatever it is they're bringing in. Um, From the time that they're young until the time that they grow up, my my kids are just out of college and, and they know this is what they have to do from the start of their working career all the way to the end of it. But it's also not too late to help ourselves. We've got some great tools at AARP. If you go to aceyourretirement.org, you will find a tool that will ask you a few very easy questions to answer and then give you a personalized plan to close your own retirement savings gap. You can also get a handle on your Social Security claiming strategy, which is very important for pretty much everybody by going to aarp.org slash social security. And I've got a new podcast that I developed with AARP where we took some real women and matched them with financial advisors to help them close their personal savings gaps. And you can find that at aarp.org slash closing the gap. Jean, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this advice. I mean, retirement really can be the best time of our life with just a little bit of planning. So thank you. My pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Have you tried unsuccessfully to change a health habit? Were you motivated to make that change? Were you prepared and ready to make that change or not? Hi, I'm Lori Gardner, registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. I am the CEO and founder of HealthLink Advocates, a firm dedicated to assisting people navigate our very complex healthcare system. We also provide coaching to individuals and groups that want to improve their health and well-being. Changing a long-standing bad health habit like overeating or being sedentary is hard. You may spend a lot of time learning about different diets and exercise, and then more time on which one to choose. I am here to say you should spend more time on learning about the stages of change we all go through and how knowing this can help everything. According to James Prochaska, there are six stages of change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, maintenance, and recycling. Understanding what stage of change you are in helps to make the change in a systematic way. You get ready to be ready. Then you prepare for the change by identifying old habits that don't serve you. You then contemplate the change and prepare what new steps you will take and habits you will develop towards that healthy goal. You are then in action mode, and hopefully you have an accountability partner as part of your preparation steps. To learn more, be sure to read James Prochaska's book, Changing for Good. If you need a health and wellness coach to partner with, please contact us at healthlinkadvocates.com. that you're only able to point out all the negative things that happen during your day? Would you like to be able to change this? Hi, my name is Jessica L. Conrad. I am a certified life coach. I work with women at a crossroads in life, and I help them find clarity and direction. I specialize in helping women going through fertility issues. One tip to change the way you see the day is called the three best things. From the time you wake up until the time you go to bed, Make a list of all the positive things that happened to you that day. It doesn't need to be big. It can be as small as waking up to a beautiful sunny day, having a great cup of coffee, or making all green lights on the way to work. Right before you go to sleep, look over your list from that day and circle what you felt were the three best things that happened to you that day. Do this for several weeks. You will find that over time, your brain will naturally begin to look for all the good and not the bad. If you are interested in learning more, 
please contact me at my website, jessicalconrad.com. Or you can book a free discovery call at helphopehappy.com. Are you stressed out? Do you let anxiety rule your life? Has anyone ever told you just breathe during moments of stress? Hi, I'm Carrie Currapito from KNP Holistic Health and Fitness. As a yoga teacher and holistic health and lifestyle coach, stress management is a huge part of my job. Pranayama or breathing exercises is just one part of yoga. There are many breathing exercises that can be used to calm the body and the mind down. Breathing is free and breathing exercises can be done anywhere. Sounds easy, right? It is. Try this breathing exercise the next time you are feeling stressed. Take a nice inhale through the nose and sigh it out the mouth. (sighs) Nice deep inhale through the nose. Really fill the bottom of the lungs with air and let it out slowly. Really exhaling all the air from the lungs out. Nice deep inhale. Nice long exhale. Keep repeating this exercise until you feel calm. Want to learn more? Visit my website at knpholistic.com or call me at 973-823-1600. Did you know that when we as women think about caring for ourselves through pregnancy, labor, and the postpartum period, that we often overlook the vital role of a birth and postpartum doula? Hi, my name is Rachel, owner and primary doula at The Village Doula. And I'm here to tell you that a doula isn't just some new age accessory for the super wealthy. Instead, she is a vital educator, guide, support, and coach through one of the most critically transformational times of your life, the time where you will make the transition into motherhood. During my years as a registered nurse, I began to see a gap in care that many mothers were facing. Here are a few reasons why a doula is a vital part of your birthing team. Women who chose to include a doula in their care were 40% less likely to experience cesarean section. Their labors were almost 40 minutes shorter on average, and they experienced a 25% reduction in force and vacuum-assisted births. Women who used a doula in their care also reported feeling overall supported, well, happy, and adjusted in their postpartum period. They also experienced lower rates of postpartum depression and anxiety by almost 35%. This is huge and such an honor to be a part of this process for new families. For more information on closing the gap in care, please visit my webpage at thevillagedoula.life. Joining me today is Jennifer Paul, a mental health counselor who helps adults improve mental and emotional functioning in order to live their most meaningful lives. She's an advisor for nothing but advice. Jennifer is here today to discuss emotional awareness. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jen, this topic that we're about to discuss today, emotional awareness, what does it mean to say that a person is emotionally aware? Emotional awareness can mean a lot of different things. Um, Emotional awareness is our ability to actually label our emotions, to actually identify what I'm feeling in in the moment. Awareness of our emotions is also our ability to recognize how our emotions manifest in our bodies. So for example, some people may say, well, I have constant stomach pain. Emotional awareness might be saying, my anxiety is resulting in stomach pain. It's not just a stomach ache. People that struggle with depression or sadness often experience body aches. Without emotional awareness, we can't identify the emotion and body connection. Another way that we're emotionally aware is our awareness of our what I call action urges. So for example, when we're feeling angry, what is our behavioral urge? Do we want to yell at somebody? Do we want to lash out? Do we want to be impulsive? So it's aware really overall of how our emotions can dictate our physical bodies, can dictate the way we behave, and can even dictate the way we think about things. And finally, emotional awareness is about identifying the emotions that we might tend to judge, that we might tend to bury, emotions that we might tend to avoid because we feel that they're not okay. So Jennifer, how do we know if we're not emotionally aware? There's a lot of different ways to recognize that we're not emotionally aware. 
one of the ways that I think is probably one of the more significant ways is that we might have a sense of numbness. We might often say, I don't know how I'm feeling. We might say things like, oh, I don't feel that emotion. So what I hear oftentimes in my therapy practice is saying, I don't get angry. I'm not an angry person. Well, the reality is that as human beings, we all feel all different emotions. The issue is, is that we're not aware of it because, again, it might be something that we try to avoid or numb. Another way that we know that we're not being emotionally aware is that we might find ourselves censoring ourselves. We might find ourselves saying, well, I don't want to say that because I don't want to upset somebody. I don't want to tell them how I feel because they may get angry. We also might notice that we react in different ways. So we may not be aware that what we're feeling is angry, but what we might do is lash out at somebody, but we might say, I don't know why I did that. I don't understand why I acted that way. The reason that we don't understand why we react a certain way is because we're not aware of where that reaction is coming from. And then finally, a way that we can tell that we're not emotionally aware is if we don't understand that we can have two emotions at once. We're not emotionally aware if we recognize or we think that I'm angry today or today I'm going to be sad, today I'm upset. Emotional awareness means we recognize that I can have a bad day and still have moments of happiness. Or I can be angry at somebody and still actually love them. So when we are emotionally aware, how can this awareness impact our life? First things first, it can allow us to communicate better. It can impact our lives in that we can improve our relationships because if we know how we feel, if we're aware of how we feel, we can communicate that to other people. And that can result in a deepening of relationships. It can result in more intimacy in your relationships. Another way that it can impact our lives is if we know how we're feeling, it allows us to actually cope with the emotion. It allows us to release the emotion if we need to. Having an emotional awareness can lead to increased physical health. We know for a fact that our emotions can dictate how we feel physically. We know that things like stress can lead to physical ailments. If we are emotionally aware, if we're able to be aware and then release those emotions, whether it's through communication with our loved ones or communication and therapy, this can impact our physical health. It can lead to an increase in our physical health. If we are able to practice emotional awareness, it's clearly going to have an impact on our mental well-being. Oftentimes, we judge ourselves for the emotions that we feel. We experience shame for certain feelings, let's say, such as anger. If we can begin to have an awareness that all emotions are okay, they're not good or bad, they just are, it's going to stop us from a lot of that self-judgment and a lot of censoring of ourselves. So overall, it allows us to be more open in general. It allows us to recognize that emotions are not to be avoided. They're actually to be felt. And if we can actually feel our emotions in the moment, even the uncomfortable ones, it's going to allow for more peace going forward. What I say oftentimes to my clients is emotions in the moment can lead to pain. They can be painful. The emotions of sadness, of anger can be painful. But pain is short term. If we can practice emotional awareness and release those emotions, that actually, that actually prevents long-term suffering. So Jen, we can see the importance and the value of being mindful of our emotions. Can you offer mm-hmm. us a few strategies to help us do this? Sure. So one of the first strategies when it comes to emotional awareness is actually that practice of mindfulness. And what I mean by that when it comes to emotions is observe your emotions. Be aware of them. Be curious. Ask yourself questions of what might I be feeling? What reactions am I having? Where am I feeling this in my body? If I were to label this emotion, what would it be? And the key here, the key to observing our emotions is to do it without judgment. It's not saying, oh man, I feel angry again. It's saying, I'm feeling angry and this is where it's happening. I'm feeling angry and this might be why. But we want to free ourselves from that judgment. Another thing we want to do is once we can observe what we're feeling, it's to respond to that. If I'm feeling angry, what might I need in the moment to help me work through my anger rather than reacting? So when I say responding versus reacting, I mean we don't have to act out on our emotion right away. We can stop, we can pay attention to it, and we can respond to what we need in the moment. Now that might be talking to a professional, that might be talking to a friend, that might be 
acknowledging the fact that I feel angry right now and I don't have to act out on that. Other things that we can learn are emotional regulation strategies, which can involve soothing ourselves in the moment when we're having that emotion. That can involve distracting at times from the emotion. It doesn't mean that we're avoiding the emotion and it doesn't mean that we're sweeping it under the rug. It means that there are times where it's not the right time to, to react to that emotion. If we're feeling angry in one of our relationships, it doesn't mean that right at that moment we may communicate that because we may lash out. We have to begin to regulate those emotions. Finally, what we can learn is that all emotions serve a function. If we recognize that emotions serve a purpose, they serve a function, we're less likely to judge them. We're less likely to avoid them. So, for example, the function of anger might be to tell us that something's not quite right, that maybe we need to speak up for ourselves. It's not bad. It serves a purpose. The function of fear can tell us, maybe I need to change the way I'm doing things. Maybe what I'm about to do is not safe. So rather than avoiding that fear or, or judging fear as a weakness, we can actually say, wow, this fear can actually be something that serves me. So at the end of the day, if there's one takeaway from strategies, right, to do this, it's to one, observe what you're feeling, two, respond to it without judgment. Just notice it, be curious, pay attention to it. Three, allow yourself to get the help you need. We all deal with difficult or intense emotions. What defines us is how we actually work through them. And then finally, recognize that emotions aren't something to be feared. They're not something to be avoided. They're something to listen to. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get more information, you can visit nothingbutadvice.com. Or if you want to hear more conversations about mental health issues, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash nothingbutadvice. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.